Behind Reservoir Church and all the notes in Scripture will be there for you. But this morning, Josh is going to read for us and pray for us, and then we'll jump in. All right. We'll do okay. It. All right. 2266 through 2325, right? That's it. All right. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then he said, What further or then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this day, they had, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has been done? What, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, this is a difficult scripture to read sometimes, Lord, um, and we, we feel like that, uh, you know, if we were there, things would be different, Lord, but um, in reality, uh, we can hear some of our own voices, and so I pray that uh, you would grant us um, more understanding of the scripture today. We have Jonathan. Um, and let the Spirit move them in the way that uh, you would want us to, to learn from them. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. 
So the innocent son of man will change your world. You guys know that I'm, I'm big on smells, right? Like how you smell is important, right? So I just maybe my nose works overtime. I like to smell things. But I want to start this morning talking about the smell of food. And I know that's uh, a little messed up because your bodies think it's lunchtime, but the clock says it's not quite lunch. So maybe you're hungry, so this will not help you. Um, but oh well. So think about the taste and smell of food, of delicious food, and how amazing it is. Just think of the last delicious thing that you consumed and how wonderful that was. And what it actually makes it amazing, what makes it flavorful and aromatic is what? The right ingredients in the right amount. And you think of it too, like I, you think of substitutes, of things that you put into food. And let me go on a little bit of rant completely unrelated to the sermon about fake sugar. There is no substitute for real sugar, right? It will kill you. So stop doing it. Stop trying to do the fake sugar. When we lived in Washington State, we had this sweet um, older lady who would always try to trick the small group when she brought desserts. She'd be like, guess what's in this? And it's like, you can't, even, you can't even taste the avocado. You can't even taste the chickpeas. And she was like making health food and trying to pass it off as dessert. So we needed to disciple her a little bit in the way of sugar. But even in that, in the substitution, there was something that was off. That it wasn't the genuine thing. And like that sweet little lady doing certain things. Many of you know that I have an allergy or some weirdness with protein and onions, but it would be like the sweet old ladies chopping the onions really small and saying, oh, don't worry, Jonathan won't notice them. It's like, well, Jonathan's digestive tract will certainly notice them. But faith can be a lot like that. When we try to substitute, like that was a hard sell, right, guys? I was trying to, I was hungry when I was writing the sermon, so um, that's where we go. But I was thinking about substitute, like the way in which we mix up ingredients and think that we have to change the flavor of things. And we do that with faith. That people are always looking for ways to change the recipe of Christianity. right? A, A dash of this here, a removal of that over here. And to be honest, some of the concoctions of the changing of the recipe of faith in Jesus taste and smell awful. They're nothing like they are supposed to be. And when we exist in an environment that is up against that, we see it in our world of um, social media, and you can interact with all kinds of different recipes of how to do faith. But this is the exact same environment that Jesus came into. There were people getting the recipe of faith before Yahweh wrong, who had actually grown accustomed to the flavor, but didn't realize that it was killing them. For the religious elite, Jesus' whole ministry had been like an episode of Iron Chef. Do you you guys know about my obsession with the original Iron Chef? It has to be the Japanese version, dubbed over in English. It's amazing, but these competitors have the same key ingredient, but what they do with that ingredient determines if they win. And that's what's going on between the Pharisees and uh, against Jesus. 
They're like, well, what's he going to do with this ingredient of what Yahweh has always promised and this hope we have and the fruit of Jesus's ministry, the sweet and savory message of the kingdom, the heat of a savior who has come to die. These are the things that our palates are actually meant to crave. These are the smells that brighten our eyes. We have faith in Jesus and it's what's at stake in our text. This week at our men's Bible study, in our section of scripture, we came across an early Christian creed. And it's like a song or a refrain or a poem that defined their faith in Jesus. And they said, essentially in the text that we were reading, who he was from the ancient of days and now come. And for our purposes today, I want us just to imagine that we are pulling in essential ingredients for our creed for what we believe. And so we'll be baking up a creed this morning and what we must, or it's, it's what we have to know of Jesus to actually have hope, to have our world changed, our experience made different. And from our, te- our text, I think there are two key ingredients to that creed. Just think of where we are in the story, in the context here. Jesus has been arrested, right? He, found in the garden as he was praying, and now he is on trial, first before the religious court and then before the governing authorities in Jerusalem. And we see why he will be killed, and we see this upside-down justice that actually gives us life and gives us hope. The first ingredient, the first thing we see in this story is that Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, we've mentioned this title before in our study of Luke's gospel. It does not mean that Jesus is human, which he fully is. But that's not what the description son of man is. But it's this title that Jesus has been laying claim to, and he's found it in an old prophetic promise. Some of you may remember from the book of Daniel. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So every time Jesus uses the title, the Son of Man, for himself, this is who he is declaring himself to be. This is how he chooses to describe himself. One writer says, Son of Man was Jesus' awesome title of choice. No one had given the title to him. Sometime in the process of Jesus' coming into his full messianic consciousness, Jesus read from the divine being in Daniel 7.13 that he is one like the Son of Man who came on the clouds of heaven and to whom the ancient of days gave glory and a kingdom and an everlasting dominion. And he said, this is me. Jesus began to use Son of Man as a substitute for his personal pronoun, I. And so we have a lot of conversation about what is your pronouns. Well, this is Jesus' pronoun. The Gospels have 82 instances of the use of Son of Man. And mostly they are on the lips of Jesus. So Son of Man encapsulates how Jesus saw himself. And it should encapsulate how we see him as well. The one who reigns over all things, over all people. And Luke tells us this story. When the day came, the Sanhedrin, the religious council convenes and they bring Jesus before them and they ask the essential question, if you are the Christ, tell us. 
So we know here, like, that's, that's not his last name. It's not like Jesus Christ, but the Christ, he is the Messiah, right? The long hoped for king in the line of David, a savior to make things right, to redeem God's people. And they want to know if he's making claim on that. And others had come claiming to be the Christ, but all of them had been proven to not be. And so the posture that the council would naturally have was to reject those that claimed to be the Christ. So they have just this uh, situational rejection. They're conditioned to disbelieve anyone who comes and declares themselves to be the Christ. But the difference is that this one has been proving himself. He's been healing. He's been speaking and preaching with authority. Like there's something different about him. So right off the bat, the religious elite are discounting, discounting the divinity of Jesus. The truth in our day is that there is no new heresy. So even from this trial in those who refuse to see Jesus as the Son of Man, as God himself, we can experience that on the street today. People who say, well, Jesus wasn't surely God. Their rejection is also because they had grown accustomed to the way things were. They liked the status quo, and we've seen it before, even in our study of Luke's Gospels, the Pharisees were prone to just warping the law to benefit themselves and to keep others down. And there's this comfort for them in the status quo. And if the ancient promise is actually here, if the Christ is truly here, nothing's going to stay the same. So they found a way to lose hope in that future promise. We just think of their situation. How many of you like change? Like anybody really excited about change? Scott often makes fun of me because I'll change pulpits or I'll move something. And he's like, you just need to have change every so often to feel like you've, you've been making progress, right? And that's true. I used to always change my haircut. But I, I can't do that anymore, so I change pulpits. But we, just like a, a natural inclination, we don't, we're not big fans of dramatic change. We get settled and familiar, and we don't like when we have to learn new things or experience a different environment. Like, we get anxious when we have to do that. And we, we get it then, the, the enjoyment of the status quo, right? Because many of us would just prefer if our status quo is generally fine and we're at the top of the heap of people that are being served, then we, we, we would like it, wouldn't we? And, and churches are... Sometimes the worst at change, and uh, Reservoir is not among the list of these churches that have trouble with change because we have experienced change. In eight years of being here, we've dramatically changed lots of things. But there's an old story of a pastor who wanted to move the piano from one side of the platform to the other, and so he did it an inch a week so that no one would notice and no one would complain because people don't like change. So these elites, the ones in charge, they just, they're in love with their current situation. They like the role they have. They like the titles. They like the way the crowds treat them. And they also knew that Jesus being the Christ would be an offense to the reigning authority. That Rome wouldn't want it. So they would be able to keep the status quo if we can pit Rome against this one who wants to come and change things. Because the truth was, it was Caesar who was Lord of Lords in this day. And if one came claiming to be above Caesar, no doubt Rome would rid us of this man and the status quo would just keep trucking along and we would be fine. 
So to this question, Jesus answers, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. They've had the opportunity to decide and he knows their motives. He knows that they don't care to actually understand if he is in the, is the Christ and to serve him, to call him Lord. But it, it's still a vital question. Like, who is this man? And we look back to Luke 9, maybe you remember the conversation that it happened when he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, the one of the prophets of old that has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the promised Messiah. And Jesus says, but you will not answer to the Sanhedrin asking him. But then he says this, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of of God. It's fascinating to me in conversations today, even people will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. You need to understand that he answers the question by upping the stakes here. And he's saying that he is the one that reigns over all things. This is his claim to be the son of God. And so don't, don't miss this. Jesus's claim to have authority equals to equal to God's. That's his claim by saying the Son of Man is going to rule at the right hand of power. He's saying, I am like the Father. And the council seems to be judging Jesus, but as the one who sits at God's right hand, he is the one that's actually going to judge them. So it's a significant turn. And they hear him take this title, and their response is, are you the Son of God then? Are you claiming to be God? And he says, what? You say that I am. And that's just like saying, you got it. And the first refrain in our creed then is, who do we say that Jesus is? Love the, the old quote, often quoted bit from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be a great moral teacher. He would either would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus, even before the Sanhedrin, either he is a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And their world would change in light of that truth. And they understand that. That's why they want him to be killed. Where maybe they would be okay with a savior that just rescued them from the external threats that they experienced. Maybe if he just casted off Rome and left us in charge, that'd be fine. But no, Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to rule over everything, even your hearts. I wonder like, how many ways we do this. 
Like Jesus, yes, be this for us, but not that. Don't change that much in our experience. And so like the Sanhedrin, we take the ingredients that we control and we whip up a batch of nasty that is not in line with who he is or what he calls us to. So some of us this week read Titus. How many of you are doing the New Testament in a year? Just me? Okay. Okay, there's the hands. Obedience. That's good. But I was struck as we were reading that, and you and I read it together, and um, just the reality of how, like, the message to the church in Crete is like a message to us. Like, that applies to our context, that the church at large has a bunch of Cretans running it. They're quick to monetize Christianity for their own gain. There are abusive leaders. There are liars all over the place. And Paul calls Titus to essentially reboot the church to the factory settings. And that's all we ever want to do. We're not going to be glamorous and we're not going to be special, but we're just going to live by the truth of who Christ is and what he's called us to do. And in Titus, he says that God doesn't lie and the fix to the trouble is submitting to the Son of Man and living before him. And it is radical. It changes your world. It shifts the voices that you listen to. It's the place where you find refreshing and the things that you hoped in will change because now you hope in him. The death of the status quo is good news for us so that you can sing that though you slay me, you're still enough for me. And the chief priests, the elders, the officers, and even the crowd on that day could not handle that. They liked things the way they were, and it's all they needed to have Jesus killed. They heard him claim divinity for himself, and so they take him, the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of Man, before Pilate. And we get our second key ingredient, that Jesus is innocent and Do we need Jesus to be anything other than God? Anything other than the Son of Man? And this is why his lordship actually works. What happens next in this story? Because he brings what we need. His innocence is the second ingredient in our creed. And Pilate, he's the Roman governor. He is usually on the coast of uh, Israel. And now this week he's in Jerusalem for Passover and that festival And the crowds are big at this moment. And Jewish sentiment is very high, so peace has to be kept. And what better way to keep the peace than to come to town and officiate some executions? That that is his sole purpose in being there. There wouldn't be another insurrection that people wouldn't try to throw off Rome as they get hopped up on Yahweh delivering them. As they uh, celebrate the Passover. Luke says the whole company brought him before Pilate, the whole council, the Sanhedrin, and they accused Jesus of three things. Of misleading the nation, of forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar, and saying he himself is Christ a king. And all of the accusations are false, right? I mean, maybe the third one, he hasn't quite quite taken on the Christ. He hasn't called himself a king. He's been calling the nation to what is right, and he hasn't done it in like a nationalistic way. None of his preaching talked about throwing off the oppression of Rome. 
And then he told the crowds to render to Caesar what was Caesar's. Remember that bit? So he's okay with the tax being paid by Israel. And he never used the title king. He'll say the son of man, but he won't use that title as king yet. And so Pilate asked Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus answered, you have said so, which is you got it. And even against these accusations, though, Pilate finds what? No guilt in this man. There's a Trinitarian rejection of the guilt of Christ. That three times Pilate is going to say that this guy is not in fact guilty. The story goes on and Pilate sees an opportunity for an out that he wouldn't have to be the one to make the decision about this guy because Jesus is a Galilean and he sends him to Herod who has jurisdiction over that part of the realm. And he also then was in Jerusalem for the Passover and he longed to see Jesus, Luke writes. We can just go right back to Luke 9, that same section about who do the crowds say that I am because Herod wondered who he was. And we see from Luke 9, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So from that moment till now, Herod has just longed to interact with Jesus to see what he would do. And we see that Herod questions Jesus at length. But Jesus won't even speak to him. There's vehement accusation by the religious elite that are there with him. And they treated him with contempt, mocking him and arraigned Jesus in splendid clothing to essentially ramp up this accusation before Pilate that Jesus was king of the Jews. Herod finds no guilt in him. And they bring him back. And Pilate said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So the accusations don't work in this moment. They realize that they can't convince Pilate that he's guilty. So what do they do instead? They just stir up the crowd. If we could just be loud enough, then we can rid ourselves of this Jesus. And this gives us a clear picture of what the Son of Man's reign actually delivers. Because in this story, we, we meet Barabbas, the real criminal, the one who is actually guilty, the insurgent murderer who is set free because the innocent Jesus takes his place. Now, if Jesus was merely a man, if he was not the son of man, he could be an innocent man and his substitution would have been effective only for Barabbas. One life for another. And we can come up with plenty of examples or situations where we could replicate that, that you just give one life for another. But in his divinity as the son of man, as God himself, his innocent sacrifice, his substitution becomes effective for all who will believe in him, for the sins of the whole world, not just for one man. Because he's the innocent son of man, we can say we are Barabbas. 
Right? The sacrifice, the replacement is actually for us. It wasn't just for that one man who was guilty, but for all who are guilty. And these are a people that are familiar with sacrifice. It happened in the temple to absolve the sin of the people. And it's always with what? A spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice. And here is our spotless lamb, innocent, perfect for us. 1 John 3 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there was no sin. He really was innocent. Peter would write, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was forsaken before the foundation, or foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. One author says, seen through the stressing of Jesus' innocence and Barabbas' guilt, Luke is leading us sinners in his careful telling of the story to identify in this significant way with Barabbas. As Jesus' condemnation leads to the release of a multitude of spiritual captives from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, so also his death sentence leads to the release of the physical captive Barabbas. It's a foretaste of the grace that will be unleashed on the cross. Jesus is manifestly innocent. Barabbas is clearly guilty, just as we also are clearly guilty before God. Rebels deserving death. As Romans 3.23 says, it's not a few of us or even many of us, but all of us who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So as Pilate releases the guilty and delivers over to death Jesus the innocent, we have here a picture of our own release affected by the cross through faith. If In Barabbas, we have a glimpse of our guilt deserving death and a preview of the arresting grace of Jesus and his embrace on the cross through which we are set free. So this is our story. It's not just the story of Jesus' trial, but it's the declaration that the Son of Man was innocent. And this is how your world is actually changed. Because this happened, all of the charges against you have been dropped. The innocent one dies for the guilty that freedom and forgiveness come through the atoning death of Jesus. We declare from Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And friends, this truth, because this happened, it changes how we face life, how we face the struggles that we encounter, the circumstances, the choices we make. Everything changes because the Son of Man was innocent and gave himself for us. And because it's the one seated at the right hand of the power of God who gave himself for us, not just your world, but everything changes. Our past is settled, our present has purpose, and our future is secure in him. And it it completes our creed. 
That God himself, the promised son of man, gives his perfection, his innocence, so we can approach his glory and we can experience his grace and our existence is forever changed. The question is, do we want this? Because even in Jesus' trial, there is a, a call to surrender the status quo that the religious elite alike. It doesn't, and we just think, does your status quo work for you apart from Christ? Probably not. In this, there's an invitation to put on his righteousness, not your own, to walk free as those made new, made saints by his innocent blood. That's what his trial does for us. It leaves the question, do we want to submit to this son of man? It's a reality that if you're not a believer, as one pastor says, if you presently like to listen to God's word, if you have a reverence and fear for God, do not be content to simply go on hearing his words. Do what his words call you to do. If you go on hearing the gospel but neglect it, you invite a fog over your eyes that in time will shut out all light. Respond now while the gospel impresses you for a day may come when it no longer does. So it's perfect time to stop just playing games and say, well, I grew up a Christian or whatever. Or like This is what I've always believed for my life. And actually give your life over to the Son of Man. And for believers who have done that, don't fence off areas of your life where the Son of Man can't reign. Because he's chosen that title because he says he reigns over all people, languages, places, over the entirety of the universe. Innocent one gave all of himself to shape all of you. Let him have every square inch of you. The innocent son of man will change your world. Shall we live from this creed? I think it smells right. I think it tastes right. These are the ingredients that make the meal, the Messiah ransoming sinners for something so much better than the same old. So let's endeavor to live in light of this. Recently, someone close to me promised them I wouldn't say their name. Uh, They made cookies. But they didn't pay careful attention to the measurement of the ingredients. And they learned in that moment the importance of having the right ingredients in the right amount. Right? And over and over again, we are invited to make sure the measurements are right, that the ingredients are correct. And when they are, our world changes forever. May we get it right by the keeping of the spirit. And may we learn to savor the work of the innocent son of man for us. That we wouldn't be the ones that cry crucify but the ones who pledge our lives to Christ because he gave himself for us. May it be so in us. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We, that seems so trite to just say, well, we thank you for giving who you are. But our words can't completely express the gift it is of your innocence, of your body broken for us, of your blood shed for us. But you do it not just to 
tell a good story or to give Barabbas hope on that day, but you've done it to solve the problem of sin. That your innocence took the place of our guilt and now we've been made righteous because of what you have done. And by your grace, we get up day after day and live under your reign. Lord, help us to see the places in which we've been trying to change the recipe. The ways in which we haven't embraced your call to take up our cross and to follow you. And help us by your spirit to set those things aside that we would see you for who you truly are and live from the light of that fact with hope. And Lord, make us a community of believers who only wants the original ingredients, who only want what you have called us to as citizens of your kingdom, that you might be glorified and that we would experience your good for us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're going to mark our uh, belief, our declaration that he is the son of man that was innocent, that gave of himself for us, or the consumption.